going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. So you can begin to make your way there. If you don't have, don't own a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, where the book of 1 Corinthians is located, there's a table of contents at the front of that. And so it'll direct you where to find 1 Corinthians. Big numbers are going to be chapters, small numbers are going to be verses. And again, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 through verse 40. You know, as we've journeyed through over the last few months through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul has had a continual message that, that, that I hope is really kind of settling into your heart and helping you to understand the incredible importance of all of us working together and all of us pushing in the same direction at the same time. Because that's one of the things that it really is necessary, it's a necessary ingredient for unity. And we can all be pushing together and we can all be uh, giving it our all, but if we're not all headed in the same direction, if we're not looking to support those around us, then we don't end up with, with unity. We end up with just a lot of people expending a terrific amount of energy and we're just not going anywhere. So it requires all of us to be on the same page, invested in the same mission with the same purpose and the same intensity. Now, I just want to kind of remind us the, the logical flow that Paul has entered into. If you go back to chapter 12 and verse 7, if you go back to chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul said to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what does that look like for us? What does that look like for Christendom? What does that look like for Christianity broadly? It's this understanding that when you came to faith in Jesus, so you came to this understanding, man, I am uh, enmeshed and mired in sin. Only God is good and holy. He sent his son Jesus to die for me. I received that free gift. And on the basis of that decision, God affects a permanent life change within your heart. And in that life change, that new heart made alive, that regeneration, he has given you gifts. He's given you gifts. And these are specific gifts. And, and the specificity of these gifts isn't necessarily that we get from this list, but the specificity of these gifts is their investment in the lives of those around you. He's given you a gift for the building up of those around you, and this is what it looks like for all of us to be gifted in the Spirit. All of our gifts work in concert one with another to build up the church so that we might be more effective, more impactful more pronounced in our manifestation, more visible in our community so that we might see lives changed for the gospel for all eternity, amen? But as we've discussed over and over again, we can say no. Man, you can be a bump on the log Christian, you cannot invest, you cannot be at work, you can uh, work with the gospel, you can just kind of sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, you know, that's really good for somebody else. But for me, I just want to spend time with my grandkids. But for me, I just want to enjoy my retirement. But for me, I just want to invest in my kids' sports. But for me, I just want to... And just so any other number of things can run down through this list. And they can all be good things, but they're not a great thing. Because what God has called you to is that you be salt and light here in this community. And you do this with a specific group of people through the use of your gift. This is difficult. Because it's encouraging all of us to want to do the same things at the same time. And and it, it's just, some of us are more disagreeable, irascible. Look it up. So Paul writes this, and he's bringing this to a close, and he's talked about how they're in Corinth, they're really split over the idea of, man, we are uh, prophets, and, and, and everybody just needs to bow down. And this whole tongue-speaking group stands up and says, oh, what about us? Y'all need to stand up and pay attention. And 
and we're the most important, and you need to pay attention to us. And so he's going to give some some points of clarification on that as he wraps up this whole section. We're not going to read this all at once because it's a lengthy section. We're just going to walk through a little bit at a time. But notice Paul begins at verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? So in essence, on the basis of everything I've said from 12 through 13, what then, brothers? In essence, are you going to apply the things you know? Are you going to apply the things you know? He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Regardless of what they have, let all things be done for building up. Now look at the amazing message that Paul just really kind of sneaks in there. When you come together. He doesn't give us the possibility that, that, that perhaps we're not coming together. He assumes that we are, that we are gathering together. If the church is the body of Christ, and Scripture tells us that it is, and if it is the body of Christ, we display that body, we display him only when we come together. Do you see that? So there's a corporate aspect of this, that when we come together, when we are invested together, and then he says each one has a gift. And so there's terrific diversification, because he lists all these gifts, right? So you have hymns, you have psalms. You have tongues, you have prophecy, you have all these things strung together. And it's in the display of all the various gifts of the body that unity is even possible. And so when you look around this room, and and maybe uh, you're new today, maybe you don't know the people in this room, but as I look around this room, I I mean, I see people in this section, in this section, in this section, nobody in the balcony, but just kind of walking over in all the various ways around it, that, that your gifts are actively being used to the building up of the people around you. And they're necessary. And so I can look at people out here, and maybe you can too, and you see people that have encountered terrific difficulty in just a really painful last season of life. Somebody near to them has died, they've lost their jobs, they've had sickness, and there's someone in this body who has gone to them and has been charitable in their opinion of them and has enabled them to bear up underneath the the pain and difficulty of this. They've used their gifting to come close to those in pain. Now, the terrific problem, right, is when we're the ones suffering, when we're the ones who are going through the difficulty, and we don't feel like anybody's coming close to us. And this is just just really painful. And and it's such an incredible disappointment. And you begin to think of perhaps the times you've come near to somebody who is in need, and you think of the times that you've been that person actively invested in the lives of somebody else. And you think, why don't I have a friend like me? Why don't I have someone like me? I can't speak to all the various reasons why people have failed, but we recognize they do fail over and over again. This is one of the reasons the Bible calls us to a solid investment over the course of our lifetimes so that the full culmination of all of these things will remember more than individual failures. We'll be gracious in our experience with other people. So if you've been failed, allow me to say that I'm sorry. If you're failing somebody, Please stop. Man, when you see the needs going on in the lives of the people around you, that's an opportunity, opportunity for you to be actively involved and invested in the lives of those people. This is what it looks like to build people up. Each one has a gift. Each one of you has a gift. We could do untold, unbelievable good in our community if you would tap into that. If you would remove all the various restrictions that you've set upon it, your schedule, your financial goals, your hopes, your dreams, 
and you would instead give yourself to the glorification of the God and the expansion of his kingdom, you could be phenomenally impactful. You could quit the bickering and the strife and be busy with the work of the gospel. And in the midst of this, we would be strong and built up. Let all things be done for building up. So we find ourselves just stripping off all kinds of junk, things that don't add to building up. I find myself in the midst of an argument with my brother or sister or my perspective or my opinion, and I say, is this building them up? Is this building our body up? If the answer to that is no, cut it out. You, really, really, for real, cut it out. If you think I'm talking to you, I'm probably not, but just because you think so, your conscience is convicting you of that, you, cut it out. That was the bit Justin told me to add. Now listen, starting in 27, he's going to move through and he's going to hit uh, speaking in tongues, he's going to transition to prophecy, and then he's going to have this, uh, for our setting, uh, our culture, a difficult word seemingly about, about women and their involvement in the service. And so just wait, we're going to get there. But notice in 27 and 28, he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. You remember that a couple of weeks ago, Paul said, look, imagine that a lost person, an outsider, an unbeliever, walks in to a worship service. And so they come right through those doors back there. And in the midst, it's just this cacophonous, you know, eruption where everybody's just blah, 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 blah. And you're not able to discern anything, right? You're not able to discern anything. He said, uh, their opinion, the, what their takeaway is, is that you're all nuts, they think you've all lost it. They have no ability to discern what's going on because it's such an unruly affair that's taking place. And so Paul wants to give a prescription for how to make this appropriate. You notice that he ends this whole section with that our worship should be orderly. And so he says simply, non-sensationally, let there be two or at most three. And so it seems Paul himself is in favor of short prayer services, Right? You remember that whole experience when Paul is preaching in Acts and, and somebody falls out the window and dies? I think this is a takeaway from that. You have, to, you have to have a short prayer service. He says, let there be two or at most three and let someone interpret. Tongues publicly, corporately, without the presence of interpretation has no place. It has no place. Not according to me, but according to what scripture says. He says, if there's not someone to interpret, let them keep silent. And this is really the catch-all phrase that Paul uses to describe tongues and prophecy and on down. Let them keep silent. Now, he's already told us in 14.4 that the one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. And he's not talking about this pejoratively. He's not saying that it's a negative thing. He says this is a positive thing. But in the midst of the corporate gathering of the church, when we're together corporately, when we, you and I come on for, our, for us in our culture on a Sunday morning, if you don't know if somebody's here to interpret, then there's no place for you to engage in tongues. Now, seemingly what Paul's inferring is that, that say, uh, say, you know, Bob over here is gifted with tongues, and Bob happens to know that, that Matt there in the back is gifted for interpretation, then he has the ability to do this on the basis that he knows that someone is gifted to interpret. So he also assumes that if he doesn't know anybody here and know their giftings, then he has to remain silent. But still, it is there, there is a place for the fruitful exercise of it, and that's in the building himself up as he's speaking to himself and to God. Now, so he moves on to prophecy, and, and, and we're, we're, we're glad that we're not going to mention tongues anymore. Look at 29. Look at 29 and following. 
He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophet are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And so just as there is a limitation given to speaking in tongues, so too there is a limitation, amen, giving to how many people can get up and speak. He said, let two or three prophets speak. And so you begin to ask yourself the question, like, what is my role? How am I invested? What does this look like in the midst of a worship service? Well, clearly he points it out right here. He says, let the others weigh what is said. Now, Paul is not pointing out, describing other prophets in the service. He's describing the laity who are engaged in active listening. Active listening. Did you know that a part of your paying attention, leaning in, taking notes, uh, you know, whatever it is, underlining stuff, or just kind of keeping your eyes open and your head nodding occasionally, that this is your engagement and that this is a job for you. There, there are any number of college classes that I sat in that, that I knew they were going to have no, you know, possible application uh, to life, like math and, and, and any other number of things. And so I just kind of sat there and just kind of, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, two plus, yeah, got that, got that, eight, what? You have letters in this? What's going on? And so just kind of this understanding that there, there were classes that I, were, that I was actively engaged in, and then there were classes that I sat there and thought, oh, you're headed down a road that I don't want to go to the destination of. And so just kind of, kind of pay, you know, what does a C look like for me in this thing? And some of us, when we show up for church on Sunday mornings, I mean, a C, you're going to get credit for this class, but whoo, there's no transferring for you. There's no higher goal for you. And so what does it look like us to weigh what is said, and why is this important? Man, it's so incredibly important because there are a terrific number of churches, there are a terrific number of platforms, and they're all espousing truth. What would be incredibly helpful, it's not going to happen, but what would be incredibly helpful is if a pastor on Sunday morning would, would kind of mount the stage, walk up and say, hey, look, just so you know, about five minutes in, I'm going to say some things. These are just opinion, and so just kind of take it or leave it. About the 12-minute mark, I'm going to run, and I'm going to hit 30 seconds on this verse, and it's going to be good stuff. It's going to accord, it's going to find itself agreeing with Scripture. You're going to want to land there. And then really at the end, I'm going to make a massive emotional appeal. You may not feel it, and that's okay, because this is just me trying to stir you up. Wouldn't that be helpful? But this isn't what we get. And so there's this assumption of truthfulness and veracity that when they come and they approach and they begin to speak, there is this assumption that the things they're saying accord with Scripture. And we just can't go with that assumption anymore. We just can't. I mean, just kind of like for, for me and my opinion and the way that I'm built, this is why we do verse by verse. Because I know that if I'm primarily building sermons on looking out and saying, what's just kind of, what's messed up in y'all and what can we talk about? Every year we're going to talk about family. Every year we're going to talk about money. And every year we're going to talk about, I mean, any number of things. But at some point we run out of that list, right? And so I'm like, we're going to talk about the five P's of family. In family, you have to, why did I pick P? In family, you have to persevere. In family, you have to put up with. Well, that sounds a lot like perseverance. In family, you have to put on a happy face. Whoa, what's going on? Now he's calling me to be duplicitous and to lie. So all these things would be my opinion. But when we find ourselves kind of marching through Scripture, it's easier to, to, to look at it as a person who is weighing what is said and say, is this true or is this not? I'd say it's easier. There's still ways to twist and distort. 
And so what does it look like for you to weigh? Paul would have you be like these noble Bereans in Acts 17, 11, who are constantly searching the scriptures and trying to discover whether or not these things are so. Five things. When you hear somebody preach, whether you're here at Ridgecrest or you never come back, the question that should roll around in your head over and over and over again is, does what he's saying, does what she's saying agree with the rest of the Bible? Is what I'm hearing causing me to remember, to recall other things I've heard in the Bible and saying, I hear what he's saying right there, I hear what she's saying right there, and it agrees, it finds commonality, or are they calling me to disagree with what the Bible says? Are they saying, you know, let's just set this aside and let's just think about this what over here? Because it's difficult to assimilate. Is what I'm hearing in the prospect of weighing what is said, is it causing me to love God and love people more? In line with what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when he's asked to summarize the law and the prophets, he says effectively, love God and love people. Is, is what you're hearing week in and week out causing you to love God more? Is it causing you to find worth and value in the people around you? Or is it causing you to find uh, inadequacies in them? Because if this is the summary that Jesus gives, then this would be the summary that we're able to find in some sense or semblance each week and when we engage in what it is. When we're weighing what is said, I mean, is it driving you to holiness? Is it driving you to holiness? Paul makes a statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that the will of God for your life is your sanctification. So just kind of sit on that for a second. God's desire when he looks out and he sees you, Kevin, when he sees you, Lauren, when he sees you, Andrew, and his heart is bent on you looking more like him. And so it's what you're hearing, what you're discovering, what you're being taught driving you towards holiness. Is it causing you and calling you to forsake sin? Or is it giving you cover to inhabit the pet sins of your heart? And we don't sit up here, we don't stand up here and look out and say, I'm going to snipe Brad, I'm going to snipe Michael, I'm going to snipe, mm, now I'm going to skip you, I'm going to hit Brenda, I'm going to hit Jonathan. But it should be hitting all of us at some level. As God's spirit is unleashed, as his word is applied to our lives, we should run up against, over and over again, different sins in our lives that we say, man, I have to forsake that. I have to forsake the possibility that, that, that I'm not always right. I have to forsake the possibility that my opinion of this person is unfair. I have to forsake my idolatry. Is it calling you to forsake sin? And then five, is it causing you to reflect on God's love for you and his church as revealed in the gospel? Are you able to readily discern and see a call towards gospel faithfulness and a gospel disposition of your heart? There's a possibility in teaching that what we really end up calling people to is a higher form of morality, a higher baptized form of morality. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. And that's a lot of what 1 Corinthians is, and I think that's one of the reasons it's difficult to teach through because they're doing a lot of the things that we don't want to do. Don't copy them in doing this. But when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when the gospel takes root in our church, it causes us to overflow with love and a proper response to God. Weighing 
the truthfulness, the impactfulness of what is said is absolutely all of our role. As parents, this is what we should be teaching our kids to do. As parents, this is what we should be modeling. And, and, and just as an average person sitting in the pew, this is your job in this time. Bring a notebook, take notes, grab that pew Bible out in front of you and just write all over it. Do it on your phone, do whatever it takes, but lean in and pay attention because this is your job. He goes on, he says, look, this needs to be orderly. In the midst of their worship setting, in the midst of their gathering, there's the possibility that this person is up speaking, standing and talking, and then somebody else would stand up and, and what would happen is that one speaking would have to sit down. Now, if I sat down every time one of you stood up, then we'd be in real trouble. But what he talks about in the midst of this, in the midst of their worship service, in this early gathering of the church, this is how they kept it orderly. So if somebody else stood up, the assumption was they're standing up to speak. And so the speaker would step down. And so the way this has changed and moved over the course of history, we have the, the, the distinct privilege of being able to see what it's looked like when we're able to send men and women off to be professionally trained. And so the church has changed over the course of time. When they're gathering together there in Corinth, they're thinking, what does it look like for us to be faithful to the gospel and to the possibility of our death? What does it look like for us to be faithful to the gospel and to the possibility of our death? And this was the truth. And this was the experience of the early church for a terrific long time. But as the church began to grow and, 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 and began to mature, it had the possibility of having trained professional instruction. And sometimes this is good, and sometimes this is bad. It should be good because it should be leading us to a deeper understanding of the truth, and it's necessarily bad when it leads to a, to a split of, of trained professionals and laity. And everything in ministry is done by the trained professionals, and everything done for intake and ingestion is done by the laity. This is not true. This is certainly not what it is. Certainly there is a distinction of role, but there's a call for all of us to active investment in this word. We are all a people of the word. He gets to 31 and he says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Paul is calling for all of us to be students and engage in the word. Now we have a variety of different venue for that to take place. Within our Sunday school hour, we have uh, age graded and then life situation split opportunities for you to engage in learning in the word and, and, and pulling it forth and saying, this is, this is what I'm learning. This is what's going on. And this is an amazing opportunity for you to be involved and invested. And it's a way for us to faithfully walk out what he says right here. You can all prophesy one by one. Our small groups that, that will meet again in the fall and in the spring are a terrific vehicle for growing in the word together and doing that over the course of a number of years. And so I can think about the conversations that we've had in our small group, and we've been meeting for a number of years with the same group of people. And so each week when somebody says, when this was said on Sunday, this is what this word said to me. And as I've thought about it, this is how I have grown in my understanding and how I've been matured in the word of God. And so it's a phenomenal vehicle for us, but we see the, 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 the overall push for this, the directionality of this, is causing us to be a people who speak the word and do so frequently. Because it's in speaking the word, it's in applying to the word to, the life, to our life situations and to the life situations of those around us that we are all called to a deeper investment 
application and be transformed to be more impactful to the lives of those around us. Amen? And then he says, look, you need to understand the spirits, the prophets are subject to them. I think probably personally is kind of being there just a couple of times for me, but I've heard a number of times different pastors or different speakers talk about just kind of getting caught up in the spirit of things and just they go on and they say something and you talk to them later and you're like, Jim, that thing you said, I found that to be not quite true, at least according to what the Bible says. And the speaker would say something along the lines of, well, I just kind of got carried away. Well, clearly, clearly you got carried away right from truthfulness into lies. And if you know Jim, then you're not surprised. But what we find is that what Paul tells us here is that there is no place for this according to the prophets. If they're faithfully exercising their role, if they're faithfully staying true to the, to the word of the Lord, then they are in full control of what they do. And in that moment, when they find themselves out of control, they're no longer honoring the Lord. They're no longer faithfully discharging his word. They're trying to stir people up. They're saying things either because they're, they're angry, and, and, and for sure that happens, they're saying things because they want people to make much of them. But always the directionality of our teaching should be to make much of Jesus. Now, let's look at 34 and 35. Let me just, as we go into this, let me read 34 and 35 or the latter half of 33 through 35. Um, we'll, we'll ask a couple of people to leave and then we'll walk through. They already left. He says, as in all the churches of the saints... Uh, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I should have taken two weeks off. <laughs> you know, months ago when we were laying this out, uh, and just kind of deciding where we'd be. I'd already kind of purposed to be on vacation, so I'd penciled in, I can't remember if it was Jesse or Justin's name beside it, and they're like, yeah, that's fine. And then they read the passage, like, hold on a second. What about a one-off sermon? All right, so there, there are a number of different ways that people have interpreted this over the course of history, and so I want to hit uh, two of these that I disagree with, and we're, we're going to go with the third one that I think is, is, is true, is right. But understand that in this passage, there are a number of faithful brothers and sisters who disagree with the one I'm going to land on, okay? So I think this can be one of these, an example of one that is an open-handed interpretation. Now, I'm, I'm happy for us to have healthy discourse and disagreement at the end of this, but just, just know that that's, that's where we are going in. And so the, the, the first option for interpretation is what's referred to, and this is, this is a fun word for you, interpolation. Everybody say interpolation. That's right. There you go. Now you know it. Now you've said it. Interpolation, basically, this is a late addition. Now, so what this argues is that the latter half of 33 all the way through 35 is a late addition. It's not original to Paul. Somebody going along there had a bad day with their wife or for whatever reason, and they're like, no, fix this. And they, they just wrote it in there. So here's the big problem with that, okay? Here's the big problem with that. Uh, the latter half of 33 all the way through 35 occurs in every existing manuscript we've got. And so they were super thorough in their writing down. They called all their buddies. Hey, when you're writing that down, Sandra said this. So just put that, put that down there. We're going to fix this, right? 
And so that's probably, probably not a great way to interpret it. Probably not a great way to interpret it. The, the, the second, and I, I think obvious, way that a lot of people interpret it is to say it says what it says. It says what it says. I think the application of this has been incredibly unloving, unkind. It has been derogatory. It has been hateful. It has worked to subjugate women. It has worked to boost male ego. And it has worked to the detriment of the church because we've missed out historically, generationally, on some phenomenal teaching when a woman would get up and, and to speak, to teach the essential class or any other number of settings, and somebody would hear that and they say, you need to sit down, you need to be quiet. So I think we have a number of, of God-equipped and talented women who know the word so well. And I've learned from so many different women at this church. I've just said, what do you, what do you think about this first? How is this hitting you? How do you explain this? And they would teach in such a way that it would just be incredibly impactful to me in my life. I think it's because God has gifted them that. Now, if we're going to talk about the role of pastor and overseer, that's a different conversation, not germane to what he's saying here, okay? If you want to look at, listen to that, you can go back to our teaching in 1 Timothy 3. But what he's talking about here is, is women being able to speak in the church. And so this plain understanding, when somebody reads it and they say, well, he says here that women need to be silent in the church. If they have any questions, they just need to ask their husbands when they get home. And so the way we apply this is that, that if you're a woman and you're tempted to speak, I really just need you to shut up. How does that even sound? We've completely disqualified every other person across the planet solely based on their gender. And we've severely crippled the church. So let me just say that, it, man, if that's how you've been made to feel here, I'm sorry. It was wrong. It's never been my position. It's never been the position of our elders. If one of our members has made you to feel that way, if somebody you think is a member, man, please come and talk to me. Address one of our elders. Let us, let us step into that situation. That's, that's not what we've meant to take place. That's not what we've meant to, to communicate. If that was at another church, let me just apologize for them. If this has been your experience, if this has kept you from engaging and teaching, man, don't let what some person's sinful application of this to you and hurtful application for this to you keep you from being able to be useful in God's kingdom. Please use the gift God has given you to be impactful in his kingdom. So it leads us to the question, then what is it? Well, that's not important. Let's move on to... <laughs> All right, so here's what it is, okay? I'm going to give you the simplest explanation I can because I'm a simple person. Why don't I think it's just a pure, they can't talk at all? I don't think it's a pure, they can't talk at all. They all have to be silent. They're not allowed to talk. Because if you flip back to chapter 11 and verse 5, flip back to 11 and verse 5, in the midst of this difficult teaching, I don't know why Paul has to, why do we have to understand difficult teaching via difficult teaching? But back in 11.5, he says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. So what's the assumption there? They're praying and prophesying, right? And so he's not talking about whether they're praying and prophesying, they need to stop it. Then there's no reason to talk about the head covering. But the whole point he makes back in 11.5 is, you have these women that, that are in the church, and when they pray with their head uncovered, what they're communicating to their culture, not our culture, but to their culture, 
is that they are rebelling against their husband or they're a prostitute. Because that's what that meant. A woman with a shaved head uh, within that context would have meant that she's a prostitute. And so what they're communicating by virtue of doing this is that they're actively rebelling against their husbands or they're a prostitute. But he never once says they shouldn't be prophesying and praying in the first place. So it leads us to this understanding that women are clearly speaking in the midst of their worship service, right? So we've legitimated that. And so it can't be just a just kind of a, a dismissing wholesale of women speaking in church on the basis of that. Because Paul would be saying two things. Hey, they can do that. Oh, 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 no. But when we begin to understand this within the confines of what he's doing here, look back up to the idea of, of weighing what is said. Some of them, for the aspect of weighing what it said, were applying likely a cultural norm of what they would have done for the Oracle of Delphi. So as they would sit with the oracle, they would ask questions and be like, should I have a child? Should I plant a crop? And the oracle would only ever respond through questions. They wouldn't get up and speak. They would only ever engage through the asking of questions. So it's possible that what they're doing is bringing that same cultic practice into the church. But what's certainly true is that these women are being a distraction. These wives are being a distraction, right? And so it's not on the basis of their gender, although he prescribes a gender-normative solution. Because they're being a distraction in the church, these select group of women are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, and he's talking about to their husbands, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, so look, they're, 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 they're curious. They want to know. And so they're asking questions to get at the root of what's going on. They're asking questions so that they can grow in their knowledge. And as a result of asking questions, they're being a distraction to those around them. He says, but if they want to learn, they can ask their husbands at home. It is shameful for a woman to speak, read in, to constantly ask these questions. So this is what he's talking about within the confines of a married couple. You know, let me just use Zach and Callie down here in the front because people that sit up front are fair game for me. And so let's just say that in the midst of a worship service, she's just constantly turning to Zach. What did he mean when he said interpolation? He's like, doesn't matter. Nobody knows. Just keep going. What did it mean? Uh, you know, just constantly over and over and over again. And Bob's looking over there and he's like, oh my goodness. And Brenda's looking over there. Oh my goodness. And you guys are all like, oh my goodness. Can she please be quiet? That's what's going on. That's what's going on at First Corinth. They're all caught up in asking these questions, so they're not paying attention, not caring how anybody else is experiencing the word. They're being a distraction. That's the principle we take away from this. We read this, and it doesn't lead us to say, if you're a woman, don't speak. We read this, and we walk away, and we say, the principle we take away from this is don't be a distraction. <laughs> and there are lots of ways y'all are distracting. I mean, just come on now. So just think about this. If, if our corporate gathering is meant to be used for the building up of everybody else around you, then you can think through all the various things that you might do that are a distraction to everybody else. You might be really captivated with your opinion about what I'm saying, right? But know this, there is no fortress of, of silence around your conversation, and some of your voices carry a terrific distance. And so probably best is just, man, write a little note down and then share it to the person beside you because I can see their face and they don't appreciate your running commentary. Let's talk about a painful one. 
painful because it's, it's going to be difficult for your bladders to contain. But some of us, some of us have bladders the size of acorns. And just, it's just as a point of reference. If you sit over here on this side and you have any peripheral vision, you can see the entire room. The way this room is laid out is wonderful because it makes us all feel like we're together, right? And you'd say, yes, that's great. But, but the sorry thing about this room that's laid out is there's no discreet way to go to the bathroom. There's not. And listen, listen. I, I have a nervous tiny bladder, and so just talking about it is making me need to go to the restroom. And, and I go to the bathroom like 15 times before I ever come in here on a Sunday morning because once I'm up here, there is no stopping now. But man, there are a number of different things. Looking at our phones, sleeping, going to the bathroom, being a distraction to the people around you. We need to lean in and pay attention so that they can weigh carefully what's going on. Find ways to encourage the people around you not to be a distraction to them. Verse 36 through the end, really, Paul is drawing this to a close, and he's wanting them to understand, wanting them to see their greater involvement of those around them. He says, was it for you only that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? No. There, there are ways and possibilities to be engaged and, and still be charitable and to work with others. This mindset that we're the only ones who have God's true teaching and his true word are, are, are false, and they work to destroy unity and to build up factionalism. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually, he should acknowledge the things that I write to them are true. And if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Paul essentially, essentially takes away all cover that we might seek to engage in by not applying this word to our lives. He says, man, the things I'm saying to you are true. Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We must apply it to our lives even if it is inconvenient to us. And then he completely dismisses everybody that disagrees with him. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he himself is not recognized. Listen to how Paul concludes this section. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Paul's desire is that all the men and women of his church would be captivated and caught up in the exposition of the word. That they would be applying the word to every facet of their lives and to everybody they came into contact with. He doesn't want them, even though it's an issue and it's problematic, he doesn't want them to forbid speaking in tongues. So he says, don't forbid speaking in tongues. Paul's overarching governing thought in this idea of how these gifts should be used and should be implemented is simply this, but all things should be done decently and in order. We're great with the orderliness, and we're good with the decency. But the difficulty for us in moving forward is how we apply this, yet not work to constrain the movement of God's Spirit in our place. Right? How do we let His Spirit be sovereign and stir us up to things and lead us into difficult things? and challenge our assumptions, but yet at the same time, have it be decent and orderly. This is the beautiful tension our great God gives to us. That as we become his children, as we submit ourselves to him, he directs even our worship of him. Would you pray with me? Let's pray that our worship to God would be glorifying to him.
that he would be honored and that we would be found to be working in concert with his spirit. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you, God, just do a work in our hearts and just reflect over the last three chapters. I thank you for the metaphor you give us of what the body looks like built together. I thank you for the call that you give us to love others and the definition you give us of love. God, even just the practical wisdom you give us there for what it looks like to have someone who speaks in tongues and a prophecy and any other number of things. God, you've given us this discipline. I pray that you would help us to be purposed in the exercise of it. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified. God, that even this and what it means to, to be the body of Christ. And so, Father, we submit these things to you. We ask that you guide and direct us in all things. In Christ's name, amen.